handheld. No, 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 don't. Okay. Okay. All right. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to, where are we working at? Romans. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is such an incredible, incredible passage. Uh, not necessarily and always an easy passage, but it is a very, very important one. And so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be working on this passage. The entitled message is called Peace with God, Romans chapter 5. And just to give you the background, if you remember, in chapters 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, Paul has mostly been talking about the sin of mankind, the judgment that God has, bringing, has brought and will bring even to the very end to those that are apart from God. But when you come to chapter 4, chapter 5 and chapter 6, you say a different thing. Here Paul is going to be working on a different kind of angle here. In the chapter before, if you may remember when you were, if you were here last week, we talked about Abraham's faith, how Abraham believed God and was credited to him faith. And so that was what was an important thing that we talked about last week. But it talked about the fact, are we saved by our works, by what we do, or are we saved by God's grace? And so that passage made it very clear. We are brought into relationship with God by grace. And then there was a whole section that talked a little about Abraham and circumcision, which sounded a little strange. But the question was, was Abraham justified before, or, you know, circumcision or after? And his point was, well, it happened, you know, that happened later. So the point was that he was trying to make that for all those who come to faith, not only the Jewish people, but anyone who has faith to believe in Christ is counted, is regarded, is given the opportunity to be the sons and daughters of God. And so that takes us through that chapter and it brings us now to this chapter that we're at. And what we're going to see in this right now is that there's going to be chapters 1 to 11 is this wonderful, beautiful section that I just read real quickly. And then it seems like suddenly Paul takes a right turn. And we're like, where are we going with this? Well, I we'll hope you'll see as we go on. So we're going to look at the first verses 1 to 11, then we're going to do, go on from verses 12 to 20. And it does seem like he's like got two different things going on, but they actually work together, and hopefully we'll see that as we work through it. So if you have your Bible, look if you would, the very first verse, because it's a great verse. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous. Again, notice that word declared. It doesn't say that you became righteous because you worked hard enough. It's saying God declared it to you. He gave that to you. We have been made. We are holy before him. We say, well, I don't always live holy. No, we don't. We're called to live towards holiness, to continue to grow towards that. But his point is, we have been declared righteous by God. So since we have been declared righteous by faith, not by works, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the very fact that it talks about we have peace with God is saying there must have been a point that we were not in peace with God, and that's exactly what he's saying here. He's talking about the fact that we, before we came to faith in Christ, that we were alienated from God. We were opposed to God. We were opposed to what God was for. And what he's saying now is, wait a minute, what, now what Christ has done through his sacrificial death on the cross. He, we have been brought into a, a situation or we have peace with him. We did not have peace with God, and now we do have peace with God. And there's two terms that are important here in the bottom we can see on the screen. The Old Testament, the term that you're famous, that you've heard of many, many times when it talks about peace, it's this word shalom. And that word shalom is not just saying, you know, well, we're not at war anymore. The word shalom is also having this idea of fullness, of completion, of when relationships are have been restored. 
And so that one's got a broader thing. The, when, it, when they took that from Hebrew and then brought it into Greek, they used another word, arene. And sometimes you see a church like arene, Baptist church, or something like that. That's a little bit more narrower than it is in when we have the word shalom. But the point, the point is still there. The point of the fact that we were once apart from God, and now by his grace, we have now have peace, we have peace with God. And then notice that phrase, through our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the full name of Christ to describe it. Now notice what he does when he says in the next verse, also through him, that is through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. That's a little tight thing. But notice that we have access. I think the NIV, if you're using that, has this idea a little bit, little bit different, that we have been opened to the place for it. But the idea is we have obtained access by faith, not by what we've done, not by our works, but by faith. And we have then the grace in which we stand. And then he has this great phrase. It's a little hard. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, that's an odd phrase. What does that mean, we're going to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? And what he's doing here with this verse, it's like, where is exactly is he going on that? Well, part of it is he's looking toward the future, to where we're going, where God's going to do when, Christ, when Jesus returns. In fact, in the passage, uh, in another passage, and if, uh, you can turn to it if you want to, but I'm just going to look real quickly at 1 John 1 John chapter 3, you're familiar with this verse where it talks about the glory of God. It says, um, look, look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him, that is Christ. Dear friends, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We're waiting for the revelation when Christ comes in fullness and power. It says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. There's that key phrase. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. In other words, when Paul's talking about here is looking to the future, what's going to happen when Christ returns? And what he's talking about here is saying, we rejoice that there's going to be a day when we're not dealing with sin, when we're not dealing with struggle, when we're not dealing with our hurts. It's saying, we're going to be there together. And just as we see the glory of God, we're going to be shining in that glory as well. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that because we live in a broken world with broken people, people like us. And it's saying, but there is coming that time when Christ comes and returns. And when that happens, we will join in him, in that glory of God. So look at the next verse. He goes on to say this. And not only that, he, keeps, he likes to use these phrases, even more so, or more than that, he keeps saying, you know, you think it's getting good? It can only get better. My parents loved this song that I didn't particularly like, the Gaithers. I know some people love the Gaithers. It's one of those things you like liver, liver. You either really like it or you don't. My parents really liked it. Their son did not, but that's okay. But here's the point. He's making this point of saying, and not only that, but we rejoice in our afflictions. Now, let's be honest. How many of you have rejoiced today in my afflictions? I am so glad that God is afflicting me. Mm, probably none of us. But the point he's saying is, you know, not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. And he doesn't stop right there because we know that affliction produces endurance. That's a great phrase. 
Affliction produces doors. In other words, there's no such thing as just wasted time and wasted work for the Lord. He said, because we know that affliction produces endurance. In other words, if we're willing to go through the sorrows and the troubles that we have in a way that's honoring to God, saying God is going to make sure that that is not a wasted time. Not that things, often things we do things that are wasted. Some of you guys may have been in the army and maybe you were in trouble or something. That guy said, okay, you're in trouble. Go ahead and dig a big hole. You know, okay, you dig the hole. Say, what do you do now? Fill it up. Why am I going to do that again? Yeah, dig another big hole. Fill it up again. It's like, this is a waste of time. But this is just the opposite. It's saying, because we know that affliction produces endurance, and if we are willing, in the midst of the struggle, that we're willing to say, Lord, I believe that you're working through this. This is not wasted time for me. He says, endurance produces proven character. Now think about that. Endurance produces proven character. In other words, not just, you know, well, that guy's a character. We're not meaning in that sense. But it's proven character. It's saying, person who's gone through it and said, you know what? I'm not sure where God is working. I don't necessarily see it, but I trust him. And I believe that he's got a purpose and a plan for what we are doing. You know, we can, do, we can deal with a lot of things if we know there's a purpose, if there's a reason. The hardest things for us is times when we can't see what that is. But it's saying when we do. It gives us a purpose to say, and produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. Hope is one of the favorite words that Paul wants to use here in the book of Romans. We have hope. I like the word hope so much. We had a child that we named it hope, okay? Verse 9, 5. This hope does not disappoint because God's love, and I love this phrase, has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's given to us. That is a beautiful phrase. It's a beautiful phrase because you think about it. He says, our hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out. It's like God's here and he's got all this love. And he goes, here's a little bit for Larry. Here's a little bit for Fran. It's not like that. It's like, it's like Niagara Falls pouring into our heart. In other words, he's not stingy when it comes to his love. That's what he says. He's been, been poured out in our hearts with the Holy Spirit who has given to us. And then he says, for while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. Here's another great word. I mean, I, I need to hear this. Yeah, that was a great verse, but wait till you see this one. This is a great one. Notice what he says. For while we were helpless, now there's nothing we can do to be in right relationship with God. While we were still helpless at the appointed moment or the certain moment, Christ died for the ungodly. What's interesting there is I'm sure if you, know, if you went back in time 2,000 years and you talked to the rabbi, he said, no, wait a minute, Paul, you just made a big mistake. You put, you know, you said Christ died for the ungodly. You meant to say that Christ died for the God, good, good, good people, the godly people, right? Paul says, no, that's the exact opposite of what I'm saying. At the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. And again, it keeps saying, that's, that's totally different of what we expect. Good people get honored by God. Bad people get bad things happening to them. Say, no, sorry, in this new covenant, in this new relationship with Christ, he's saying, for while we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. It's like the best deal you could ever get. And so he's saying, do you see what's happening here? So look at the next verse. For while we were still helpless at the appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
And then he goes into this, for rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die. Many of you story of Maximilian, um, I'm afraid of his last name. Uh, I think I've got it written down. Well, maybe I don't. But anyways, this guy was a, a, a Roman Catholic priest, and he was unfortunately found himself in Auschwitz during World War II. And it was a terrible time, and a man had escaped and among the group that he was with. And among this group, the guy escaped, but the SS officer came and said, okay, there's 10 of you here. One of you is gonna be killed, and we'll just decide which one's gonna be the person. And so they had to draw straws, and the one poor guy, he had to draw the straw and said, okay, you're the one we're now gonna kill. And the guy like, started crying, and he said, what about my father? What about my mother? What about my child? Anyways, this Catholic priest, Macmillan Cult, I think was his name, he said, I'll take his place. And the guy looked at him and said, are you serious? Yeah, I said, I'll take his place. And he told the SS guard, he said, he's willing to take my place. He goes, are you, ki you kidding? He says, no. He goes, okay, well then we'll kill him. So they put him in a room and they didn't feed him for 10 days. No bread, no water. And he was, of course, in terrible shape. And then they killed him. But he willingly was willing to do that for a man he had never met before. It gives you an example. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his love to us. And while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a message of hope and grace and mercy beyond what we could ever understand. And yet God has done that for all of us who come to faith. Then he goes back much more. Since now we've been declared righteous, not declared, I mean declared righteous, not we're made righteous. He said we are declared righteous by his blood. We will be saved through him from wrath. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 he talked a lot about wrath. But now he said we've been saved from him and from that wrath that he talked about. For if while we were enemies... Enemies against opposed to God. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? In other words, if his death brought this, that was pretty great. Wait till you see what his life does when he's resurrected. And so it goes on in that passage to say, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have been brought into right relation with God. There's no struggle between us. We have been brought into relationship. Okay, that's the first half. Here's the second half where it seems like Paul's going one direction. He goes, you know, on second thought, I think I'm going to go this way. And you're like, really, Paul, why? Well, he had his purposes, and we'll see. It's a story here that he's going to do. It's an analogy. And what he's going to do, and I realize that this is, gets a little bit more difficult, but stay with me. It's going to be a story about two men. Two men, and again, it's an analogy. It's not a real story, but it's an analogy. It's going to be a story about two people who had a huge impact upon not just themselves, but upon all of mankind. So stick with me with this. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man... That man that we're going to be talking about is going to be Adam. That's just as he entered through the world through one man and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all men because all sinned. 
Now, this is important here because it's making the point that through Adam, everybody in some way, and we'll talk about later how that happens, but what's going to happen is saying all people have sinned. All people are sinners. And so he's going to say, here's one man. This is Adam. And what he's saying here, it's a little different. Now, I don't hope Jesus doesn't mind being purple on the screen, but kind of think of it this way, okay? There's two people here that are being discussed. One is Adam. And what Adam did, and then the other one, of course, is Christ, is Jesus. And the point is, with Adam, what happened is the fact that all died because of Adam's sin. On the other hand, for Jesus Christ, he's the one that brings life. And so he's talking about an analogy of two. One person, Adam's sin, had huge universal impact upon all of the world. It's dealing with this question that we come to at the end, where it's a question, why is it that the world is so messed up? Why is it you couldn't go to maybe some place where everybody was kind and loving and they shared and nobody did bad things? You know, you'll never find that place. We know that sin has involved and has been brought into every single person. You might want to think of it as like a, a, a gene that has been twisted and it's wrong and it causes something, but it's carried down from one generation to another generation, that sin gene. There is no sin gene, but the point is like a sin gene that keeps going one generation all the way. And so notice what's going on here. He said, Adam brought death to all the world on the uh, life, other sense, Christ brought life to the, brought life uh, to all. Of course, here we're going to follow him by grace. Now, notice what he says in this passage. He says, "Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man." Now, this is a real question, and if you have any questions about David right here and and John, they can help you with the theological issues. They've got it all figured out. But the question is, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, death came through sin. Now, the question is, how they all got that way? That's the trouble. In this way, death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, notice this. In fact. Sin was in the world before the law. Before Moses got the law, there was still sin, okay? But sin's not charged to one account when there's no law. In other words, if the cop pulls you over and says, hey, I'm going to you know, charge you, you know, you're know, you speeding. They say, well, there's no law here in this town about speeding. What's the policeman have to do at that point? Well, there's nothing he can do. You can't, if there's no law, he can't be arrested for doing it. And so he's making this same point. But sin is not charged to one's account when there's no law. And that's what happened until Moses came. And so what he says is, nevertheless, now notice this rain, phrase, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, when the law came. Even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression, he's a prototype of the coming one. Now notice what he means by this. But the gift, the gift of Christ, is not like the trespass that we've, had, we've seen. For if by one man's trespass, Adam's sin, by one man's trespass, many died. How much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ? He keeps making this analogy. From Adam brought universal death. Christ brings death to all the world, to all those who will come to him by faith. And again, it's going back to the question, why is the world so messed up? Why do we see sin on every single person that you've ever met or you ever will meet until you meet Jesus Christ? And so he says, and the gift, the gift of salvation, is not like the one like man's sin, because from one sin, Adam's sin, came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. 
but from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. So once again, God has given us, we have been declared righteous in God's eyes that we could be his sons and daughters and children. Since by one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned. Death is like being personified as like a living creature. Death is alive. Death has power. And he says, since by one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace? I love the phrase. The overflow, the grace is running so high, it's coming over us. It's like a flood coming over us of his grace. And so those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life. Before it talks about destruction, but now it's reigning in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There's Jesus and there's Adam. Adam brings sin to all the world. Jesus brings life to all those who will come to faith in him. And so he comes to this passage. So then, as through one trespass, Adam, there is condemnation for everyone. So through one righteous act, that is Jesus' death on the cross, there is a life-giving justification for everyone. In other words, what was lost in Adam is being restored in Christ. And we have been made justified, but we have justified by him. So notice he said, For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, Adam, so through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, which is a strange phrase, like made it even worse. But where sin multiplied, and I love this phrase, grace multiplied even more. More grace. You got grace? How about more grace? Got it. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a great passage it is. Notice this phrase, for just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now real quick, let's just think about this for a second. There's two major ways of looking at this, and neither of them, I'm positive what it means. Because sometimes when I get up in the morning, I think, yep, that's the correct understanding, and then usually by the afternoon, I've gone to the other one. But it's, here it is, real quickly. This is the idea we talk about inherited sin. Something was in Adam. There's something in Adam that was carried on from one generation to another generation right to the present day. The other, and that's you see this in this passage. The other one is what's referred to as the federal headship. It's the idea that of like Jesus is like the one who's like the, our, our, the one who's in charge. Federal has that idea of like the government. Like, you know, we have, um, you know, a president, Obama, who's there. And in other words, he is like our federal representative. He represents America for us. Now, we don't need to get talking about Obama, okay? The point is, federal headship means some person who's in charge in which he has an impact upon all those that are around him. In other words, and that's what we kind of say, with, we say sometimes in the, here in the New Testament, this idea of the federal, like a person who's in charge. Now, now that that is completely clear for you, we can go back to this one thought. This passage deals with the reality of sin. I have rarely met anyone who doesn't admit, admit that they're a sinner. I've had a few. I've had a couple of people said, no, I've never sinned in my life before. And I said, you are really in trouble because everybody sins. But the reality of sin is important. But the point again, what was lost in Adam has been more than brought to us by God's grace. And that makes a real difference. And like I mentioned, I love that phrase, God's 
grace has been poured into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Do you deserve that kind of love? No. Can you have that kind of love? Absolutely. Coming to the point of realize, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've, I've made mistakes. I've made problems, and, but problems. But I believe that, Lord Jesus, you really died on the cross for my sins. And if you're willing to take me, I'll, I'll, I'll come. And it'll give me new life. And so he's saying, here's this. This is a gift. This is the greatest gift you could ever have. And if you don't know about that, I'd be happy running them. And other people here would be happy to talk to you about it. But what's important here is really that there really is an issue of sin. But the great thing is, as bad as sin is and can be, it's nothing compared to what God and his grace can do for us. We don't deserve it. It's pure mercy. It's pure grace. And we ought to be living our lives as men and women who daily recognize that all the great things that I have in Christ is not because how good I am, how good my mother was, how good my dad was. It's like all mercy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One other last thing. If you were paying attention well, and I know every person was, that in that passage you might have noticed again how he talked about the blood, the death, the blood, the death. He kept coming back. The reason we have life is because Christ was willing to die. We have life because Christ was willing to die on our account. And because of that, we, among all people, ought to be some of the most grateful people you could ever meet. Because when we had nothing going for us, God in his mercy has given us life. Our Father, you've given us a great passage that remind us of the fact that we are sinners and yet in your mercy while we were yet alienated from you that you have brought us into a right relationship not by what we have done but what you have done for us Lord help us to live as people who know deeply in the depths of our heart that we have a great Savior and we have a privilege of knowing him, serving him, and having an impact on this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.